Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC, where on this show, we dive into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on the podcast app. And if you want to see all episodes and learn more about this podcast, you can go to www.theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Caitlin Strandberg. Caitlin is the principal at Lair Hippo, the most active early stage venture capital fund in New York. The firm has more than 250 active portfolio companies with investments in some of the leading consumer companies, including Allbirds, Casper, Guideline, and K-Health. I'm so excited for this episode. And Caitlin, thanks again so much for coming on. So without further ado, here's Caitlin. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. So what attracted you to the world of startups? I know you worked for uh, Behance and LearnVest and you were, you were an uh, early employee there and then you made the jump to venture capital. Yeah. So gosh, what attracted me to startups? So I think my journey started in about 2008, 2009, 2010. So I was actually a student in college and I was working on an entrepreneurial project. I was kind of starting this like student run internet radio station and internet television station. And uh, we called it a digital magazine before you knew what the word blog was. And so I kind of got the taste for entrepreneurship uh, by doing that as a student. And when I was graduating, I was really looking for that type of experience after, um, which is how I kind of landed at Behance. Um, And I I think the thing that attracted me the most was this idea that you can be, um, you know, initiative is valued more than experience. And since I didn't have much experience coming out of undergrad, um, I really liked that with startups, I was able to do um, a wide range of things, move fairly quickly, learn by doing, um, and kind of move a little bit faster than you could in traditional roles that kind of, you know, in management consulting or banking or something like that. And so it was really a cadence and um, let's see, like breadth of experience that really resonated with me when I was like 20, 21 coming out of undergrad. So that was super, super exciting. And that's what got me into startups. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was very interdisciplinary too. So you could on any given day, you could be working with the creative team. You could be working with the development team on the technical side. You could be thinking about strategy. You could be thinking about customer experience. Um, so for me, it was like this wide range of different things that I could kind of seek my teeth into, um, and it really kind of captivated my interest and my curiosity. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what got me into startups. Why, why did you choose to then jump from uh, working in early stage startups to venture capital? You know, by the time I made the move to venture, um, I had, I worked at two different startups. So I worked at Behance, um, right out of college. I was a very early employee. I think I was employee, you know, 10, 11 or 12. Um, and I stayed there just as they were announcing the Series A funding. So they had about 35 employees. And then I joined LearnVest. And LearnVest, I think I joined as employee number 35 and stayed through about 100 employees. So I'd kind of seen a pretty interesting life cycle of startups. So kind of from that very early finding product market fit phase all the way to kind of like the growth and scale phase. Um, and so it was then when I kind of was thinking about the other side of entrepreneurship, which is the investing side. And I had worked at startups really um, trying to 
trying to learn how to be a great founder. I worked for phenomenal founders, so I just kind of wanted to observe and see how they did things. And the next evolution of that was, you know, if I really wanted to be a founder, you know, maybe I should meet hundreds of founders on the venture capital side and um, get some experience there and figure out the product that I wanted to build, but also figure out the type of founder I want to be. And so um, my first couple of years in venture, I was um, just trying to meet as many founders as possible. I was trying to learn about as many industries as possible. I was trying to understand how financing for early stage companies worked. I really wanted to see what like good, better, and best looked like within companies. Um, and I thought that maybe it would give me a little bit of like a cheat sheet for when I wanted to start my own company. Because um, at the time, you know, my first couple of years of ventures, I had a very, very deep, deep seated um, kind of founder envy streak in me and all while kind of like appreciating entrepreneurship. Um, but then when I took a little time off and I went to graduate school, um, I actually found out that, you know, I, I was, I really enjoyed my time in venture and I really liked all the um, different things I would do every day. And I actually started to like that a little bit more than this idea of being a founder and starting a company. So, um, so that's kind of like how I made that transition to venture and, and, you know, venture is a very, very different role than working at a startup. So in operating. So when you're working in venture, particular, particularly if you're on the junior side or the younger side, you're really playing more of an advisor support role. You're very much playing the, the coach position versus the player on the field position. And for someone who's under 30, that can be actually like a pretty um, tricky trade-off you have to make because when you're young, you can experience all sorts of different things and work at all sorts of different companies and really learn by doing. And when you decide to do venture, you basically kind of decide and sign up for kind of an advisory type of career. Um, so, so when you kind of work in venture, well, yes, you're seeing a wide range of businesses and yes, you're meeting with incredible people working on really, really hard problems. You're really just helping, supporting and connecting. Um, you're kind of um, giving advice, but the entrepreneur day to day is kind of executing and, and really kind of rolling up their sleeves and, and doing the real work. And so um, you do have to make that trade off. And I kind of made that trade off a little bit later. But yeah. So that's kind of how I think about the two. Cool. So what's a day in the life as a venture capitalist? It's so much of it is kind of like thinking and context switching and like having to spending your day meeting with eight different companies where literally they couldn't be more different and it's back to back to back to back. It really stresses and kind of expands your mind in a way that and activates your mind in a way that I think nothing else has really done for me. So since you were an operator, what were some of the learnings that you took from uh, from from working at those two companies and how? how those experiences influenced you as an investor? Being an operator and then working in venture, I think it's given me a couple of different things. I think on the first first point, it's a real appreciation for how difficult and hard a startup can be day to day. Like I saw firsthand the ups, the downs, the challenges, the pressures, the wins, the losses, um, you know, managing team dynamics, like all of that, the nitty gritty of that, I think um, it, having experience that I really understand how difficult startups can be. You know, everyone say start everyone says startups are hard and entrepreneur entrepreneurship is hard, but until you really do it, you really don't know and you really don't understand. Um, so all of that has given me kind of the second piece, which is real empathy for founders. Um, you know, I think that founders are really doing some of the most important work. Um, they're sacrificing a lot to bring their vision into the world. And so I have a high degree of empathy 
um, for the founder and an appreciation for that. Um, I also think, you know, some some well-founded companies from the inside or well-funded companies from the inside. I think I also now have a high level of, um, I feel a high level of responsibility and a privilege for being a board member. So, you know, at any of these companies before, before a board meeting, it's always a little bit of chaos where, you know, executives are trying to pull together slides and we're trying to get a deck ready. And it's like a focus on the board meeting, the quarterly board meeting uh, for a good amount of time. And then, you know, coming out of a board meeting, um, you know, an entire business strategy can change. And so as a board member, now I really think um, very deeply about the advice and the perspective I give. And I really feel like I do have a responsibility and a privilege to really prepare and bring it because anything that I kind of like say or do can um, carry a pretty heavy weight across an entire organization. So I kind of think about those three things as, you know, appreciation for how difficult it is, deep empathy for the founder, and then just taking my job um, and taking my role as a board member incredibly seriously uh, and and responsibly. So what are some of the challenges when it comes to evaluating consumer startups, especially at your stage? Yeah, you know, it's really difficult. And, you know, I talked to some of my peers in venture about this quite a bit. And, and one thing that everyone always says is like, consumer is so hard. And I was trying to think about, you know, why is it so hard? And I think it's a couple things. I think for investors, it means a couple things. It means you have a very limited amount of data to go on. You have very few customers that actually will buy and purchase your product. It's very difficult to market to different groups of people. So it's not like you have a, a small group of cons- customers to kind of push product to. I think the other side is, you know, there is a lot, there are fewer exits in the consumer space. So you have kind of like less M&A generally, and you have less of consumer companies, fewer consumer companies going public. So you don't have a ton of great examples of what like billion dollar success looks like in the consumer space. You certainly do have some. Uh, but you don't have it nearly, nearly as um, obvious as kind of the enterprise side. So, you know, I think the core challenges are with consumer, it's really difficult to tell if customers will buy something. It's not like you can call a consumer and say, hey, would you buy this product? It's really tough to market to consumers because consumers are experience the world in a number of different ways across a number of different channels. So instead of, you know, marketing in a trade show, like you can do an enterprise, you can't really do that on the consumer side. You know, it's really tricky to get organic growth with consumers. So, you know, a lot of people in the past have market, a lot of companies in the past have marketed it on Facebook and Instagram. Those days are kind of over. And so if you can't do that, um, finding the mechanisms to encourage word of mouth marketing and referral marketing can be, can be really tricky. And then I think that, you know, maybe like the third or the last and most, most important thing is probably you're really betting on the zeitgeist. And so a lot of venture and venture investing is like investing in a product at the right time in the market. And for consumer investing, you're really betting on kind of like the the tone of a particular generation or period where a brand gets accepted and kind of like, you know, really has massive growth. And so I think that's actually the probably the trickiest part is, is evaluating timing with consumer and the consumer sentiment. I would imagine like in, in enterprise, you can at least talk to customers and seeing if this is a real pain point. Whereas consumers, it's a lot trickier to see if this is actually a real pain point and an opportunity. In consumer, how do you evaluate whether this is a uh, real opportunity or pain point for the consumer and something that, that, that they would actually want? I think that's a great question. And I really like that question because you didn't ask, how do you know if the consumer wants a product? It's really all about identifying, I think, like the pain point. So for example, when I kind of go back in time and I talk to my team here working at Lair Hippo, 
um, about why we made some of the bets we did. Many of the companies that have been some of our big winners didn't really look, um, they, they didn't look like what they are today. So for example, Glossier, when we funded them, I think we were the first check, um, we were actually funding a beauty blog called Into the Gloss. Um, Allbirds um, did not have the brand. Allbirds is actually a company called um, Three Over Seven. And Casper hadn't yet launched and it was actually a company called Duke. And so many of these companies at the time of funding at the very, very early stage don't actually look like what they look like today. And so it's tough to find a invest in a product and hope someone's going to buy it. What you're really investing in is a problem and a particular solution that's going to fit that problem. So the example of Casper, you know, we looked at that business and we looked at that opportunity and we thought, you know, the market is incredibly, um, you know, monopolistic. There was like one massive player and it was Mattress Firm and maybe a couple other players, but it was like this one big massive player. Um, and you had a customer experience that people really didn't like and really didn't enjoy. Going to a mattress store was um, not very fun, not very interesting. It was actually very confusing because you could go to two different mattress stores and you could be on the same mattress and they would be called different things. They would literally be the exact same product with two different names on top of it. And so you had a not so great consumer experience. You also had a lack of transparency on products. And then you were paying quite a bit for something that consumers knew was actually not that expensive to make or create. And so there was a little bit of frustration there. And so, you know, Casper kind of came to market saying, hey, we're going to create a, a better way to distribute this product. We're going to create a fun, interesting brand that's not tired like mattress. And we're going to come up with a novel way to distribute it so it's convenient for customers at a price point that really resonates with them. And so that was like a really, I think, interesting and simple way of trying to figure out if a company could fit a problem. And it was identifying the problem clearly. It was coming up with an interesting novel and like, you know, plausible way of solving that problem and then just kind of going after it and then iterating very quickly on top of it. I think what, what makes Casper as well really interesting is because uh, I, I, I hear you on the uh, consumer experience, the old consumer experience of going to a store and buying a mattress, but also if you were able to figure out um, how to actually uh, sell mattresses online, it would be a tough, I would imagine it would be a pretty tough business model to copy because mattresses are pretty, I, I imagine the shipping of mattresses are very expensive and how they were able to do it with with fitting it into standardized shipping boxes is pretty incredible. Totally. And that's only some that's again that's only something that could have existed in 2010, 11, 12, 13, like right when the internet was kind of um, when new brands were emerging on the internet, right when you had millennials really shifting most of their spend online. And the and the consumer behaviors and assumptions and preferences were changing. So I think in the past people would have said you're crazy to buy a mattress if you haven't tried it. I think millennials you haven't gone to the store and laid on it and rolled around. I think millennials are much more accepting and trusting of brands that really have transparency at their core. Um, and you know what's in the product and there are great reviews. You know, millennials were looking online to look for review sites. I think there was um, a little bit of a wow moment with the unboxing. And so it was one of these times where the problem was right to be solved and it was meant to be solved by a digitally native brand. That's where you kind of could connect massive market share very quickly. Speaking about brand, you have more of a connection with brand than ever before because of social media and, and, and the various ways that consumers can interact with brands going directly. And also there's a deeper connection with brands because, uh, because of their values. You know, maybe 
for example, like Bamba's socks, uh, how they donate a pair of socks to the homeless. Do you think that this is the golden age of brands and consumers will pay, uh, pay a much larger premium than ever before just because of the brand? Or do you see... Or do you see due to competition, you know, there's fewer barriers to entry for D2C and, and it's going to be harder than ever for a brand to charge a premium? So I think that's a great question. Um, is this the golden age of brand? So that's a little tricky because I don't necessarily know. I don't know what golden age really means. So on one hand, there are more brands than ever before, like micro brands, um, you know, companies that, that folks are standing up just from their apartment. Like, I think on one hand, if you think of it as a golden age, like, are there more opportunities and more access? And is it, is it easier than ever to build a brand? I would say absolutely 100% yes. We have so many new brands and it's because you can build on Shopify, you can plug in Stripe, you can go to Lumi for packaging and you can have a product that gets into customer hands just by pushing it off on Instagram or having an influencer kind of marketer share it. You can outsource all these different pieces and parts um, that you could never do before. So on one hand, yes, a ton of new brands. It's great to be a brand now. It's great to be a consumer and have a lot of choice. On the other hand, you know, I, I think there, we might be seeing a bit of like a diffusion of brand power. So, you know, when there's so many different brands out there and different products on the market for particular like consumer packaged goods, you can really, as a consumer, there's a bit of a paralysis around um, this idea of unlimited choice. When you look back in time, there's actually a really great report that IAB put out a couple of years ago, and it showed the top consumer brands of the 1920s, and then compared that with the top consumer brands of the 19, I think it was 1983. This is literally like 60 years later, and the top brands barely moved over time. So for 60 years, the brands were still the same. It was Eastman Kodak Camera. It was uh, Gillette razors. It was Nabisco cookies. And for a long time, the brands had kind of stayed the same. It was really difficult to become a new brand in this space. It was really difficult to fight against the supply chain or the distribution because everything was held in retail. When the internet came along uh, in like, you know, the early 2000s, but really like, you know, 2010 and on, it became a lot significantly easier to start a brand than it had in the past. But there was this special moment in time where brands could really market on social media. They could build a presence on Instagram and Facebook. They could advertise there. They could really be a brand that stood above the old brands of the past and really, you know, kind of get noticed. And, and the number of our companies in the portfolio fell into that. So we have Warby Parker, we have Casper, um, we have Allbirds, we have Glossier. And these were brands that I think could not have been built 20 years ago, but could only have been built now. And, you know, in any of those products, when we ask if, if there's space for a premium, if customers are willing to pay more for new brands, you know, I think, I think customers are willing to pay more. I don't think they're willing to pay a massive amount more. And what they pay for is a couple of different things. So on one hand, they're paying for, you know, the connection to the brand. It means something to be a Glossier customer, and it means something to wear Albert in today's world. They're also paying for things like convenience to get something delivered to your door, they're paying for, you know, what they perceive is like a higher quality product or, a, you know, middle to a little bit more higher, higher quality product. So I think it's kind of those three things. Um, I think most of the brands that we see that are mass market aren't pushing premium luxury prices. They're actually um, competitively priced with the product on the market or maybe a little bit less. But what you get is convenient. So just a, a very clear example of that is like Warby Parker. So Warby Parker, for example, 
Um, when you become a Warby Parker customer, when you're considering being a Warby Parker customer, they would send you five pairs to try on, in-home try on. You can put it on, you can take pictures, you can you know, ask your significant other, ask friends what pair you want, and then you could actually send it back. So for me, that's like a huge convenience. And that's a huge thing that you would pay even a little bit more for as a new consumer. And that kind of like speaks to the brand. I was thinking of golden age of brand, the margins for brands are, are better than maybe ever before. I, that's a really interesting point because, you know, the way that I think digitally native brands think about it is they pass the market while, while getting rid of like the wholesaler and the distributor and the retailer. They're also, they're able to collect more margin and pass more margin on the consumer by providing lower prices. But I don't think that works anymore. I think they were able to get rid of the retailer and all these different things because the internet and social media and kind of where consumers were accessing information was kind of like a wide open field. I think in the last five years or so, it's really started to narrow. It's gotten really, really expensive to market to consumers online. And so you're almost seeing like companies have to go back to the basics and come up with, you know, omni-channel approaches. So you're having to see them do kind of like shop and shops or events and partnerships or have their own kind of owned and operated retail locations. You're seeing it kind of come full circle and having brands having to go offline to get that consumer, which actually takes a little bit away from the margin. I think this is some excellent points about the current landscape for D2C.